Hello and welcome back to Comics Over Time, a podcast where we take a trip through the history of Marvel Comics with a focus on some of the important and interesting comic stories that inspired the Hollywood blockbusters of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Every two weeks we take a look at a batch of comics, then watch the related MCU movie or TV show, then when, after we're done, we connect the dots from the comic book panels to the moving pictures and try and answer the most important of questions, who told the tale best, the books or the screen adaptation? My name is Dwayne, and with me, my co-host and good friend, Dan. Welcome. Oh man, it's going to be fun. So, going to be an interesting week. It's been an awful lot of... Like uh, superheroes at the Cineplex lately, but we've got a new one coming out just next week. Ryan Coogler yes. back in the MCU again. Uh, we've got Black Panther 2, Wakanda Forever, which opens in theaters next week. In preparation for this, we are actually going to be taking a look at some previous Black Panther stories. Actually, for the most part, war stories. Uh, and then we're also going to try and get a glimpse of the first comic appearances of two characters who are going to be in this movie and who may actually be a big part of the MCU in phase five and beyond. So get you a little prepped for, uh, for some Wakanda forever here, Dwayne. Yes. I'm, I, I, I went in kind of blind into the first black Panther movie, which is a fantastic movie that we're going to get to down the road, but now getting an opportunity to see some of these characters at a time. I'm really, really looking forward to discussing it this week with you. And then, uh, seeing it in theaters next weekend. So, uh, But first, we have some comic book news that we're going to go over real quick. Uh, the first is more variant covers coming, and they're, it is a Marvel and Planet of the Apes crossover covers that are coming in February of 2023. Uh, apparently, Marvel had done some uh planet of the apes comic books back in the in the mid 70s uh 1975 it looks like uh adventures on the planet of the apes and to celebrate this in 2023 in february they're going to be releasing 20 over 25 covers of various popular marvel comics uh with these special titles by uh all different artists and they're in the article that we'll link to there is a probably about a dozen of them uh, that they actually show what the art's going to look like. And there's some, some pretty amazing stuff in here. Uh, did you get a chance to look at the article and some of those covers? I, I did take just a quick look at that just to see kind of what was going on. Yeah, it's, it is amazing. The, the talent level of the artists who are working for the various comic companies these days really is kind of just un, unworldly. There's an awful lot of amazing stuff going on. But, yeah. Oh, variant covers. Why do you have to be this way? But nonetheless, <laughs> they, they, are, they are really cool. There's no question about it. But, of course, you know, then you have to decide, are you going to buy the regular version of, of the book you collect? Or are you going to have this crazy Planet of the Apes one where there's no actual apes inside the book that you're reading? So the cover is just this thing. So I was I was wondering about that, how that exactly yeah. worked, because it's like So your other option is just to buy both of them. So you have the, the ape variant and you have the regular, which yeah. That's what they're yeah. hoping you'll do. Uh, so what just just as a note, we talked about Moon Knight last week, February first, Moon Knight number twenty has a Planet of the Apes variant cover. So 
uh, one go. of one of many uh, on here. So yep. if you're interested in that, if you like Planet of the Apes, this is uh, definitely something you should look into. Uh, and do love the other- especially the old original Roddy McDowell like Planet of the Apes movies. Those were those were spectacular. But anyways. Did have some bad some, news. Yeah, we had some yep. sad news that was announced this week. Kevin O'Neill passed away. Uh, Kevin O'Neill, the artist best known for his work uh, on writer Alan Moore's Leave, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, has passed away, according to reports. Uh, I I was not real familiar with him. Uh, when, no, but most was, people would not be. It, uh, I am familiar League of Explore of Extraordinary Gentlemen. That's that's been made into into a movie or more than yep. one, I think, uh, possibly. There was yes. there there was a very interesting <laughs> note in the article though that uh, brought me back a little bit. It said one of O'Neill's earliest American works was Tale of the Green Lantern Corp, Annual Number Two, which uh, he drew from a script from Alan Moore. That story came went on to become a key issue for DC since it introduced concepts concepts that were later materialized as the Blackest Night storyline. Ironically, O'Neill's work on the issue was briefly threatened when the DC, when the Comics Code Authority refused to approve it. Ultimately, in what is still a rarity in the 1980s, DC elected to publish the book without the code's approval. So we, we talked yes. about that back in the phase of the Moon Knight uh, times, the, the Comics Code Authority and how much sway that had on things. And, and you wouldn't go against it, but this was one of the rare instances where, where the comic company, DC in this case, decided to just go ahead and publish without the approval. And, and this is actually kind of a, almost like a, an, a singular moment in comics code authority history because almost always when something was presented, there would be like a scene where there was too much blood or something looked a little too sexualized or whatever. And they would, they would ask them to change that panel or rewrite the the dialogue or something. And when they asked them why it was that this was, was refused, Uh they said, they said they just generally, did not like the look of Kevin O'Neill's artwork, and there was nothing that DC could do to fix the issue because they just didn't like... Like, O'Neill's art was unacceptable to the Comics Code Authority. That is is crazy. Which is, it's never happened. It's just weird. So somebody had a vendetta against him. Uh, And that's one of the reasons, yeah, they just just decided to, to essentially just go ahead and publish it without the code, which did happen every once in a while back then. Uh, especially by the time you got into the mid to late 80s, there was, you know, the other option. In the 70s, this would have been a death knell, of course. They'd have simply had to redraw the entire issue or pay off somebody at the code or whatever you did when something was was just disliked for this reason. But O'Neill did do a lot of really important stuff, especially in British comics. So a lot of his stuff, like, you know, back before he came to America... He developed a significant following. And then probably Extraordinary Gentleman is his most important or at least more, most famous work here in the States, uh, working with Alan Moore. So, All right. Let's, let's, uh, on that note, why don't we move on and let's talk about 
Black Panther, because that, that is the main topic for, for the episode today. Um, I do have, by the way, a, a segue okay. that I just remembered. And that okay. is that one thing, uh, I've been, back in the day, uh, before I started doing all of this, I was reviewing uh, books about comics for Comic Book Yeti. And one of the books I reviewed last year is one called Why Wakanda Matters, uh, What Black Panther Reveals About Psychology, Identity, and Communication. It's edited by Sheena C. Howard, PhD. And it is, it's an academic book, but it is really good in talking about Ryan Coogler's original Black Panther movie and how it was made and how it was written and how the, the production team and everything was really just this congregation of like really talented black folks making something that was sort of directed towards the black community. And it is a really fascinating book. So if you're interested in reading a little bit more about uh, sort of the Black Panther movie uh, or, you know, there's a little bit of Black Panther, the comic character in there, but it's really more about the making of the original film. And it does talk a lot about Chadwick Boseman, uh, a lot about Coogler, really good stuff. So I would, I would highly recommend that. Can, uh, we can probably put a link into the my original review in the show notes. And if you've got some interest in that, you can go and check it out. Definitely. definitely. We will include that so you can find that uh, in the show notes. All right. So with that, we're going to do kind of a quick two-minute history of Black Panther. Now, because this is the second movie... Most people have a pretty good idea who Black Panther is, especially since this really was kind of a cultural tidal wave when it hit a yeah. few years ago. If you didn't know who the Black Panther character was before the movie came out, as we got up to the movie and then once it released, this was really something that pretty much everybody was talking about. But Black Panther himself is a character who actually debuted originally within the pages of the Fantastic Four way back in number issue number number 52. He was created by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, and he was the king and the protector of this fictional African country called Wakanda. Wakanda, from the very start, has been a nation that possessed superior technology and that had never been defeated militarily. Partly, this was due to the hereditary Black Panthers, who serve as the nation's protector, uh, and partly it's because they have this vibranium mound in the center of the country that's provided them with technical and economic wealth that sort of allowed them to hold off their jealous neighbors as well as the rapacious colonizers that had come in and caused so much other damage on the continent. The Black Panther we mostly follow in the Marvel Universe is the current one named T'Challa. He took the mantle of the king when his father was murdered by Ulysses Claw, we're going to see this week, uh, and soon after won the title of Black Panther in ritual combat from his uncle. Uh, it's one thing that isn't dealt with in the movie that's different in the, in the comics, is T'Challa did not immediately take over from his father as Black Panther. There was another adult who took over. T'Challa became, I think, king at like 13, but he didn't actually get the mantle of Black Panther until he got a little older. Um... He then challenged the Fantastic Four in issue number 52, basically just to prove to himself that he was ready to go and take on Claw and to take over as a superhero. Okay. Um, so he wasn't really, they didn't fight as villains. It was more kind of a, 
I'm going to just test myself against you type of thing. Um, over the years then, he's evolved to be a member and the leader of the Avengers. And he's been involved in nearly all the major Marvel events and crossovers and everything of the last few decades. We, of course, have seen him in Moon Knight pretty regularly as the guy who keeps trying to, you know, find out exactly what Mark Spector is up to and whether he's going to blow up the Earth or can be trusted to be left out amongst the people. So he's right. the one that sent Tiger after, uh, after him and everything. T'Challa's powers and, and costume as well have changed over time. But in general, he's always had this enhanced strength and stamina due to the heart-shaped herb that is given to the Black Panther. That's sort of this ceremonial, um, ceremonial herb. And then his costume at various times has been stronger or less strong, but currently it's vibranium infused. He's got advanced electronics and he also has some very impressive claws. So it's kind so of I, like an Iron Man armor suit, but with claws. Yeah, they're, they're like, I think they're vibranium claws or something. And so they're like, they could do pretty much anything. It, well, and they're vibranium. And because Claw's his guy, they also have some sort of additional stuff in it that, like, disrupts Claw specifically. Yeah. So his claws are specifically designed to take out this guy. And we'll find out, we'll talk about why Claw is sort of his classic enemy and shows up in all of these things. But, so that's kind of T'Challa. He's been, he's been around for a long time. He is a very important part of the Marvel Universe. And, you know... Obviously, he's an important part of sort of comic book cultural history because he's the first really big black superhero. Um, the There's a distinction to be made there because he's not the first African-American superhero. Really, that, that title pretty much goes to Jon Stewart, the Green Lantern from the, the DC Universe. Uh, but because, of course, T'Challa is not American. But... He was the first real black superhero uh, in American comics who was featured prominently. And, you know, over time, he has continued to be somebody who, uh, both of the writers that we'll be talking about this week, are black guys who have come into comics from other places, partly because of their love of this character. Uh, so, interesting so stuff. The stack for this week that we're going to be looking at is Black Panther Volume 3. That's uh, in 19... 98 uh we're going to be looking at issues 26 through 30 uh, we're going to be looking at black panther volume 4 that started in 2005 we'll be looking at the first six issues of that one through six and then finally we're going to look at invincible iron man from 2016 the very first issue of that uh and we'll get to to why that one is in there uh, a little bit later We have a uh, creator profile this week. Who are who are we spotlighting uh, from the creator standpoint, Dan? I want to just mention a little bit, and, and we'll talk about these guys more as we go along. But the second series we're reading from 2005, uh, the first issues of Volume Four, were written by a guy named Reglin, Reginald Hudlin, and he was actually the writer on this for quite a while, from like 2005 to 2008. This was a really good set of books. Um, and it's very entertaining, but it actually occupies a relatively small place in Hudlin's overall work history. 
because he had got his start way back in the day doing music videos after he got done with a, uh, I think he graduated from Harvard or something like this. Um, he started out with music videos as a director, did some uh, did some production work on them as well. Then he, he actually directed the movie House Party, starring Kid and Play in 1990. So quite a long while ago. <laughs> that, that, um, that takes me back. <laughs> haven't heard a lot of Kid and Play lately. No. But uh, he, that, he also directed Amy Murphy's Boomerang, which I liked quite a bit, actually. Uh, he served as president of entertainment for uh, BET, has an Academy Award nomination for producing Django Unchained, and he's worked quite a lot with the NAACP Image Awards as well. Wow. So a guy who has done a ton of stuff in Hollywood, uh, both as a writer and a director and a producer, and he's very involved in sort of black entertainment in America. And so it's it's interesting to see somebody with this kind of a resume decide that he wants to come in and write Black Panther. And this was pretty exciting for us at the time, having somebody with this kind of a, a pedigree coming in. And he really turned in a spectacular run. Uh, but besides this one, uh, Hudlin's also been involved with the relaunch of the Milestone Comics line with Dennis Cohen. Um, and he continues to sort of occasionally return to comics, just writing a story here and there. Um, the other thing, just as a note is that his connection to the Black Panther family actually extends a bit beyond comics. Because one of his other movies, a movie he directed, was called Marshall. It's the biography of Chief Justice Thurgood Marshall. And Chadwick Boseman, who of course, Black Panther, played the lead in that as well. So he has a history not only of writing Black Panther, but of writing of uh, working with Chadwick Boseman as well. So... Wow. Yeah, so pretty impressive guy to have right in your comic books, to be quite frank. So yeah, yeah, and uh, I we we need to dive in because I definitely loved that that book that series of books that we read this week, and so not not to take anything away from this first set of books, but let's let's dive in and talk about the first uh, volume three set of books so that uh, we can get going on. Sure. Yep. Because we're actually going to be looking at three different story arcs, three different series, each of which kind of focuses on some elements that I think could be informative heading into that release of Wakanda Forever. So we're going to look at each of them in turn and then talk about some of the interesting story points and characters and whatever as we go. So Black Panther Volume 3 is where we're going to pick up. Like you mentioned, that started in 1988. I think it went to like 2003 or something like that. They got 62 issues out of this run. So it was a substantial, uh, probably I think still the longest Black Panther um, volume in terms of its total number of books. Uh, we're going to actually pick the story up in the middle with number 26. So T'Challa at this point has been dealing with the fallout from a bunch of recent political upheavals. He's had his leadership of Wakanda challenge. There's been all sorts of uh, problems with the American government, all sorts of things like this. Um, and besides that, he's also starting to rekindle his romance with Storm from the X-Men, who you may remember Halle Berry's Storm back in the day from the X-Men. This 
This all results in them actually getting married a little later on in the run. So this is the start of of that, um, and and they're actually going to uh, they're going to have a romance, and then eventually one of the biggest Marvel marriages in years uh, will come up in a couple of years. During this, though, what we're actually going to see is that the White Wolf, who is a stepbrother kind of of T'Challa comes to Wakanda, sets Claw free, who's been imprisoned in a vibranium mound somehow, and then Black Panther is forced to deal with both a potential war with the Lemurians, who are an offshoot to the Deviants from the Eternals. We'll talk about that. <laughs> Which also brings him into conflict with Namor, Doctor Doom, and Magneto. The story is actually called Sturmendrang. It's written by Christopher Priest, drawn by Sal Valudo and Bob Almond as a penciler and inker. And it was colored by Steve Olaf. Um, the lettering, it says, is by something called Sharp Font, S-H-A-R-P-E, which I think either has to be an alias or a studio. I have no idea who did the actual sure. lettering. But everything here was really well done. Uh, interesting stuff. I, I did like this series of books. But tell me what you thought. Tell me about these books. What interested you? So, I... It's a very interesting story that had a lot of characters kind of in here that I wasn't expecting. First of all, I was not expecting the Deviants to be a part of anything that we were no. going to read this week. And no, and there's I kind would of, not. <laughs> there was the and, and kind of they were were and like Namor kind of has this like protective sort of situation going on with the deep with the Lemurians as well because they live deep in the ocean as well and so like he is kind of acting as their sort of surrogate in these discussions with T'Challa and and really interesting a really interesting situation there um I, I don't I don't know it was there was a lot going on in there it, it it starts with them finding this this baby in in Wakanda that apparently is actually a, a deviant or a mutant or something no it's a deviant but it's a deviant that looks like a human okay. and because of that they find it to be extremely like you know distasteful and has to be destroyed because okay. any deviants that look too much like humans, they're considered to just be too ugly to survive among the population. So T'Challa does not want to let them just take the child back to kill him or kill her. I guess I think it's a little girl. So they instead, he instead keeps the baby and the leader of the Lemurians comes and says he's going to declare war unless he gets his people back. And then everything goes. Yeah, it just kind of escalates from there and. So, so let's go ahead and just talk about some of the characters in, in this crazy cast. Um, we haven't seen a whole lot of Namor before, but we've talked about him. Yeah. What did you think of Namor in these books? <laughs> he, he's, he's really interesting. And like, so he's the crown prince of Atlantis. He's, he's, you know, basically just underwater most of the time. They called him a pacifist. Which seems a little weird because he he 
he didn't seem like that much of a pacifist during during these books. He he was I would I would not I would not agree with that statement. He is he is somebody who prefers when everybody isn't causing trouble and killing each other because it usually gets in his way. But he is fully willing to smash everybody if he needs to to keep his people safe. Yes. So he and, is... and like yeah, he like at at one point he attacks uh T'Challa at because yeah. because you know some people started firing uh some of his people started firing on uh on on the uh on his on the deviants and some of his people and so yeah it was kind of crazy they they called him a hothead and that i think i would agree with because because and, and he actually yes. sort of kind of walks in as they're talking about him and and Everett yeah. ross who we're going to talk about in a minute calls him a hothead and he actually you know calls himself a, yeah. a hothead. how he survived that i don't know i would not i would not recommend a normal human calling name or anything other than sir to be yeah. quite frank because uh can be unpredictable but uh i think really what you do see though is that namor is somebody who very much is a political sort of being and yeah. he is he is always that in the comics he is somebody who he's he's protecting what he believes is his he has a set sort of code as far as what is important and the like and if you mess with him, he will take action. Right. You know? So, I do think it's interesting that in these you see that he's protective of the Lemurians. That is not, that's not normally something we see a lot of. And, you know, going back to our very first test podcast, <laughs> our, our our wonderful Eternals podcast that I don't know we've ever even published. No, it has um, not seen the light of day. <laughs> Partly, you were not impressed with the Eternals comics from back in the day, but uh, but the the Deviants are weird because they are if you if you've seen the Eternals movie, the Deviants are portrayed as these kind of crazy, almost like uh, beast type things, but in in actual fact they were more humanoid at least. But the strange thing is they're constantly mutating. So no two deviants really look alike. And they have, some of them have strange powers and whatever. Um, that they would be involved at all in the movie seems extremely unlikely to me. So don't, don't expect to see them there. Especially with the, the box office of the Eternals movie from uh, a <laughs> no. while ago. I no. think they're, they're going to just avoid that entirely. But, you know, Namor was there. And we also had two other essentially quote-unquote kings because you have Magneto who's sort of in charge of a lot of the mutant uh, population and then you have Doom who of course is the king of or the ruler of Latveria. So because of that they also get involved in these sort of political machinations and somehow they all have protection policies with each other that somehow will activate and so you end up having this huge war potentially starting if people aren't careful and and then yeah it almost turns into a massive shooting war 
But it's interesting because what you really see here is sort of T'Challa the politician. Yeah. You know, it's actually, it is actually kind of a, uh, a political drama that talks about alliances and preparations for war. And then, of course, he actually fights Claw. But really, other than that, for the most part, the political side of it gets sorted out. Yeah, there, there's not a lot of, like, action, I would say, in that first set of books. There, I Like, there's things going on. There's, like, drama and tension and things like that. But, like, to see Black Panther fight, there's not really that much of that in these books. It, it is literally kind of that political thriller sort of sort, sort of yep. set of books in, in, the, in this. Yep. And... And he does, there, there's a little bit more on his, you know, his family and things like that. You do have in the first books, you know, the fact that White Wolf is the one who sets Claw free. The White Wolf character is actually his brother who was raised essentially by his father. Uh, he was another one where he was orphaned in, uh, a white kid who was orphaned in Wakanda taken in by the king, raised up, and then essentially when T'Challa's born, T'Challa starts getting a lot of the attention and he gets very jealous of him. And so he really is just, it's just Loki in a different guise, essentially, and less cool, like 150% less cool. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. Nonetheless, uh, but that's a character who then, you know, he, he brings back Claw. And his entire reason for bringing Black Claw is because he, he essentially is like, I know the only thing you want to do in your life is kill Black Panther. So go kill Black Panther and I'll be happy. Right. And that is that is what Claw takes off to do. So there you so go. The interesting thing about the way this this story or this this arc ends up kind of coming to an end is it's actually like it got negotiated by Everett Ross, who is another. He actually plays a very key role in each of these series, and 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 that was the uh, character that Mark Martin Freeman played in in the in the first Black yep. Panther movie. So he he's he's like a a government a U.S. government agent, and he he seems to be the one that actually knows something about Wakanda, knows something about T'Challa, has this like. I'm not sure what the relationship is there. You you were you were mentioning that in in He calls him the, the client. Yeah. So so like I don't know if there's like a a handler sort of situation going on there or or what exactly is going on, but he 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 like literally negotiates like the truce between uh nope. you know Namor and and the Lemurians and Wakanda and uh you know Magneto doesn't have to do anything Dr. Doom doesn't have to do anything and everybody's just sort of uh is is okay with it and actually I think Namor is the one that ends up with the child if I remember right Namor gets the child Namor also has to technically he uh he concedes um by just sort of like taking his forces back and giving up but he's not really giving up. It's just part of the plan. But still, that... Uh, so, yeah, there's a lot of... But there is. There's a lot of politics that goes on. And, and it's interesting because you don't often get... 
the sort of negotiated settlement type of thing. Uh, and I, I like that the fact that, you know, because of the fact he is technically a leader, that some of these things should be solved outside of just with, punching with someone, With right? words rather than fists. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. And then, but but yeah, Everett Ross, he, it's interesting because his role in the, in the first movie is relatively limited. But I think he, it's representative really of what he is in the comics, kind of. That he's this guy who's there and sort of helps out and, and he is, he's an American who works with the American government. His loyalty lies to the American government, but he's still doing everything he can to well represent sort of T'Challa and, and Wakanda and the like. And so, yeah, kind of a, a true he, middleman. He, he definitely seems like he respects um, Wakanda, T'Challa, everything that they're doing. And like, there there is... You know, it, as we get into the second story arc, that he he's the one that's brought in and, and explains what Wakanda is, who these people are. You know, gives them back background story, history, and all that. Uh, nope. Because nobody else knows who they are, and they just think that there's some 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 people in the jungle in Africa somewhere. And you know, why why so should this and, be a problem? Let's go and take a look at. The second one then so that yeah second story arc we read actually unless you get anything else but i think that's no. the the basics no. of um I, I guess one thing i wanted to check on the artwork in the first one i know we talked a little bit and you weren't so sure about the artwork in this i uh, by sal valuto the pages seemed incredibly busy to me like if you open up the just like the very first page of issue 26 after you go into the cover after you go you know open up the cover it's just all over the place there is so much text and it's like the story so far but it doesn't make any sense and there's you know a a truck driving in the snow and all this sort of thing and it just yep. i don't know something about it just there was it was busy there was a lot of noise there was a lot of words there was a lot of uh the, like the action sequences the little bit that there were i had trouble kind of following them and that sort of thing and it was hard to read like what 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 order do you read some of this stuff in as well and so i just i had a hard time with that first set of books he has a lot of panels where he he uses weird sizes of panels and circular panels and overlays them on top of each other and everything. I get exactly what you're talking about. I do still think that Valudo's art is beautiful. He's really, he really is a very talented artist. He's an Italian guy, actually. Um, and done a lot of, done a lot of stuff uh, that I like. But I, when you mentioned it, I understood and, and knew almost immediately Um this is the George Perez problem all over again, I suspect. It, a, a little bit, yes. That, I, I will say you... this. I will say this. There is, and again, this this actually reminds me of George Perez. There is an incredible level of detail in the in the artwork yep. that I think is is very very interesting to look at. And it if it was, 
If it was one of those things where I was just focusing on the artwork, that would be fine. If I wasn't trying to read a story around it, that sort of thing, it would be, I'd be able to maybe take it in a little bit differently, but it's just, it's, yeah, it, it felt really busy and felt really hard to read. It, it it does not help, just as a note, that you do have, I mean, Priest has unbelievable quantities of words on a lot of these pages. Yes. So he has, he has just put so much in, in terms of dialogue and stuff going on too, that when you take the fact that the art is full already and then you put this many words in them it can get a little overpowering so but i mean to me it was and maybe it's because i'm i'm more used to like the old school this feels more like a 70s or 80s book in terms of the the quantity of text in it um but i i quite liked it and i and it felt like i got my money out of these reads because i don't know if you noticed these took a while to read Yes, they did. They are. They definitely. They are not. Did. You sit down and spend five minutes, and you're through with the comic book. It's a, and it's partly because, like you said, there are times the art sort of loops you around, and you've got to you've got to work. But also, there's just a lot of stuff to read and think about in these. So it's, it's a, it's a full comic book. It really is. So, anyways, so that's the, uh, that's our first series. Second story arc that we read was the Who is Black Panther. And that kicked off the first issues of Black Panther Volume 4. It's by uh, Reginald Hudlin, John Romita Jr., Klaus Janssen, Dean White on colors, and Randy Gentile on letters. Uh, In this one, you have a group of supervillains, including Rhino, Batroc, and the Radioactive Man, who try to take over Wakanda under the leadership of Claw. Shuri's introduced in this series, albeit in sort of a limited role, and Wakanda's difficult position in world politics is highlighted again. So, this is, I think, not only good in terms of it's got some of the the political conflict stuff, which may be useful for the movie, and it gives us our first look at uh, at Shuri, kind of places her within the, the Black Panther world, but... It also, if you're not familiar with Black Panther's history, it gives you a really good black, uh, uh, really good background of who the Black Panther is, what Wakanda is, all of this stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Everett Ross makes an appearance again, and he he's explaining yes. uh, what Wakanda is, and it's this small African nation. He calls it. He says it has a warrior's spirit. Uh, it's never been conquered. It's never invaded anybody. It, uh, it has very advanced technology, uh, so much so that they do not need to tap into a, a fairly sizable oil reserve that is right underneath the country, uh, instead going to more uh, eco-friendly sort of ways of powering their, their, their uh, country. Uh, they talked about no alliances, both in the past or in the present, and, and even talked about a... Uh, uh, you know, that they've, some of the, like, one of these, like, hot-headed U.S. generals was like, ah, we'll just go in there and we'll take him out. And he's like, and Ross is like, yeah, we sent in Captain America and, and Black Panther kicked his butt. So, uh, 
but that's that's not exactly just an easy thing to go ahead and do so you might want to hold back on that idea yep and it's it's interesting too i mean the part of this just seemed weird to me because essentially the the person he's talking to is considering when these were made is an obvious Condoleezza Rice clone essentially who was Secretary of State or whatever back then. The right. idea that anybody at those levels of the American government didn't know what Wakanda was by this point just seems like malpractice. But nonetheless because yeah. um, there had been a lot going on in, in the Marvel Universe with Wakanda over the last however many decades. But in any case, yeah, they, you know, and it's interesting because one of the things about Wakanda that's talked about in a lot of the, the books and, and by a lot of folks is that it kind of becomes sort of this, this analog of a, an Afro, Afrofuturism type of or Afrofuturistic society type of thing. You know, the idea of what could Africa have been like if the colonizers and everybody hadn't come in, if white people hadn't come in and and just sort of messed everything up over time. So there's a lot of different things that sometimes you see brought into Wakanda and explored through that. And that is one of those things. It's this part of Africa in the Marvel Universe that just never actually had any of the colonial powers take over it. And so it, it gives the writers a chance to kind of experiment with what that would be like. But... Yeah, it's it's been it's been interesting to see, you know, they they kind of go through and talk about that. They also look at Wakanda going back far into the past with some of the previous Black Panthers and the like. So it's yeah. a hereditary for the most part title, where everybody um, who gets it has the power. They are the defender, but it is technically not hereditary because every year, kind of like on the cliff in the movie. The Black Panther has to actually defend his title against all comers. And if anyone can actually beat him, then they take over and he's no longer the Black Panther. Yeah, so, we, we see we see a, a couple challengers during this. Mm -hmm. And in fact, uh, kind of our introduction to Shuri is she's like trying to get out of the out of the castle and wants to go down and and fight for the right to be uh, the next Black mm -hmm. Panther. Uh, you know the and, and ends up kind of getting there right as T'Challa finishes off his uncle to to get uh, to 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 become the next Black Panther. Exactly. So, and and so that's interesting though because it gives you that chance to kind of see Wakanda over the generations, over the years, kind of as it develops, and it gives us the chance to see a little bit how some of these characters develop or, or where the, the allegiances and stuff come from, because you even see that there are people who in the present are threatening Wakanda, whose great grandparents or whatever were folks who had attempted to come in and essentially attack Wakanda, seeing the gold, seeing all the stuff, and then found that that was not a particularly good idea. Like it's <laughs> no, it's, it's the 1800s are coming in with, you know, maybe 19, maybe early 20th century. I don't know. They had like Gatling guns and the like. And and Wakanda has warrior robots or something that takes them out. So, yeah, it uh, it's interesting to watch. But as we get through that then and up to current day, the problem they have is that yet again, 
there are not only supervillains coming in, but the United States government as well is sort of hedging its bets and saying, hey, you know, if people are attacking anyway, we got a bunch of zombie cyborg soldiers we could send in yeah. and sort of just take over while it, all this it, is going on. We can invade, I mean, assist them in their yes. in, in what's going on, yeah. Yeah. So, so I think that too, you know, it, it, it's interesting because a lot of these books, the, the way they look at the United States and American politics is maybe a little different in the Black Panther books than what you'd see in some of the other mainstream Marvel books. Yeah. Uh, the United States kind of always is looked at a little bit askance, um, because it's, it's from the standpoint of another smaller country that's trying to keep its keep itself safe from American aggressions. So. Right. Can't, can't say that that's probably a completely inaccurate sort of uh, look at, at, at our U.S. government. Um, let's, let's talk about Ulysses Claw because he, again, but, makes, he, he had an appearance in the first set of books. He's very much in this set of books. And in fact, we find out uh, in these set of books that uh, that that Claw actually killed uh, T'Challa's father, the previous Black Panther, and that was why you know he was kind of set 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 out to to try and take down uh, T'Challa in these books. Is uh, you know he's basically got this grudge against Wakanda and like kind of the family or or like the black panther uh kind of that that no figure i guess i i it was a little hard to discern he's apparently a belgian assassin and you know uh unlike the movie where where you reminded me he actually ulysses claw is in the first black panther movie he he actually has like this like I don't know what he 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 is missing an arm and in its place there is this device this like it's a sonic converter okay I I, I wasn't it's made exactly... out it's made out of vibranium which is why it's got those crazy sonic powers okay. so he is actually he's linked back to Wakanda by that too by the fact that his powers partly come from now at times he's converted himself into complete sound so he doesn't even have an actual body claws all over the place in terms of the stuff that's happened to him but okay. in in general the what you're looking at there he's just got this big kind of prosthetic thing that he can create massive sound waves with so you know but but yeah so he's somebody who it, it's really strange the way that he has this grudge. But it's not strange at all why Black Panther hates him so bad. Right. right? Yeah. I mean, the guy killed the guy killed his dad. Uh, I believe he killed his older brother in that same attack. Because he killed both um, T'Chaka and the heir to the throne as well, which would have been the older brother. And so this is a guy who he has every reason to hate. and And besides the fact that you know, he is the sworn protector of Wakanda. And this guy keeps constantly coming <laughs> yeah. in. And, and he just looks like, I mean, he's Belgian, which, you know, when you talk about places like uh, the Belgian Congo and the like, the Belgians were some of the worst 
sort of um, colonizing uh, forces in Africa at the time. So having him be Belgian is its in is its uh, itself a statement. Then they they make him the son of like a Nazi war criminal just to really ladle on that this entire family just just yes, generations yes. back the entire family is just bad um so but yeah and near the end black panther is not taking mercy i mean he is like i'm gonna kill this guy and he he, he attempts to do that um but claw is extremely difficult to kill so seems to seems to keep coming back which We'll see, because he was also killed in the movie. I don't know if you remember, I, but he I, was he was uh, he was shot in what appeared to be pretty significantly uh, to the death terms by sorry. Killmonger uh, near an airplane at one point, and uh, so we'll see. Maybe he'll be back. Maybe he won't. We we did see a little bit more of uh, Shuri after kind of that opening opening little bit uh, in like the first book or two is she ends up helping out because the vibranium mind starts to like vibrate or something. And they're worried about this like collapse or something. It turns out it was something that radioactive man was doing and causing, causing all sorts of issues. But, but she actually is going in and like investigating uh, the mind to try and figure out what was going on, why this was happening, and ends up kind of in harm's way because of, because of it, because there's like this, is there like a missile launch or something that was going to, or something was going on with the mines that... Uh, something else, something else essentially made everything start to fall apart a little bit and so yeah. then the mine was collapsing around them and yeah and then, yeah yeah so so like she and, and she did it like against the wishes of t'challa and and that as well and, and so like you know you could tell that she's going to be kind of yeah. a a strong spirited person as well and and is like i want to do something i want to help out this is this is what I'm going to do. This is what I can't do. Uh, and, and, and she just went ahead and kind of did it on her own. Nope. So, and that's, you know, the, the fact they'd started here to sort of extend out the family a little bit more and the like, and, and just, you know, previously having him married, you know, you've got, you got, you know, siblings and the like, it just extends out sort of the cast of characters and the things you can do with Black Panther as they were starting to do more stories with them and, and that sort of thing, which is, which is kind of cool. Um, so these two stories, which one did you prefer of the, uh, of the two Black Panther stories? Now, I, I'm not sure if it was partly because of the issue of kind of jumping in in the middle, what felt like the middle of the story with that first set of books, but I, I will tell you, I really liked the start of volume four. Uh, the, those first six books, the the Who is the Black Panther was really, really well done. And I, the story felt very well paced. It felt easy to follow. And I have to tell you, I absolutely loved the artwork in that in that in that set of books. There was a lot of bright colors. There, there was a lot going on. There was definitely a lot more fighting and things like that. Uh, but it was still really easy to figure out what was going on. It didn't seem 
uh, difficult at all. It did. It, there was nope. a realistic look to it, but also kind of a stylized look to it as well. If that makes any sense, it it, it, it wasn't like photorealistic, but it definitely like everybody yep. looked um looked good, and like the panels looked different on every pages. They were different sized and different things like that. And I have to tell you, like some of the full page or two page spreads that they had in these books, like I, I the the second the second book, you open it up and like the title page, the who uh who is Black Panther Part Two? You see this giant Black Panther statue just taking up like the yep. entire like half of the first two pages there. And it looked just absolutely gorgeous. And there's a there's a couple of these two page spreads throughout this set of books, and they just looked fantastic. And and I, I was reading these on an iPad, and it just looked it was just like a feast for the eyes. I just I absolutely loved the the artwork in these books. Yep. No, I would I would agree. And, and the other thing I don't know if you noticed, and it might be just because. He he was doing it for whatever reason, or it might be because it, it kind of worked with the way Hudlin um, had had planted paced things out. But a lot of the panels are sort of like full horizontal panels where they go across, and there's like four on a page or something. They almost right. look like movie frames. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of there's a lot to be said that having a great director write the story. Uh, I wonder if if he did almost like some some little thumbnails or something to give some sort of an idea of what was going on. Because you're right, it's unbelievably well paced. It's unbelievably well written. It just flows perfectly. And so this is really just a, a classic comic story in a lot of ways. It's entertaining. It it delivers a lot of history delivers those flashback scenes and the, and the like. I think that if you wanted to make a movie out of this, you really wouldn't have to change hardly anything. No. You there, know? there is a lot there that you could you could just kind of all just kind of lift from the pages and put directly into a movie and it would work really well. So, but yeah, the uh the characters are well developed. It's interesting stuff. There are a couple of of elements to it. Um like with uh some bodies being stolen and stuff that don't particularly get picked up yet. So there's a few thought plot points that you'd have to continue on to the next stories to finish through. But for the most part, it's also a very self-contained story. Yeah. You know, these six issues just have a solid story and it's told and it's done. So there you go. So we have one more book to talk about. Right. Just uh, one, one kind of quick one. We're going to take a little look at a character who's only kind of hinted at in the in the previews of Black Panther. But those of us who are in the know from the comics are pretty sure that we know what that means as far as who's going to be featured in the movie. Um, Riri Williams is actually a young super genius in the comics who designs her own superhero armor. And even as a teenager starts goes, going out and fighting crime. When she's doing this, she actually gets noticed by Tony Stark who decides, you know, you're doing well, but you'd be even better if you had an AI of me inside your armor. 
I love to kind that. of help you out. I right? loved that. At the so end, so he of the sends book. her. He sends her that, and so we're going to read Invincible Iron Man number one, or we did read Invincible Iron Man number one from back also in 2016. It gives us her origin story, uh, and sets her kind of on that path to the Iron Heart armor and the Iron Heart role. So, what do you think? I I was not familiar with this character at all before reading this story. I, I saw almost nobody is. I saw the trailer. I saw the image. I saw what looked to be an iron suit, and I was like, "Who is this?" And and now now I've got a a little bit of an idea. So Riri Williams is amazing. She is she is literally they call her a super genius in this. It is apparently a step above genius. There's like multi, there there's like more than one category of genius, and she is she is way up there. And yeah, she's in this book. She's designed this armor that looks actually very similar to like kind of the early styles of the Iron Man armor, and yep. she's like kind of trying to get it to to work and use it, and it's not working especially well. It it, it, it She's got like this AI in the suit, but it's like taking a while to load and it's giving her like this extraneous information that she doesn't need. And and so it was really and she ends up fighting in this book, at least this this mutant who is attack. I don't even remember. It's like Animax or something like that. Yep. And and her her thing is that she can produce monsters out of like her dna or something like this so yeah. a little bit odd but, you know so she yeah clocks, you... she clocks her and yeah you you so you have like this like almost like i think it was a little bit like a flashback to kind of her as this little girl and her parents finding out that she's this this like genius kid and then you kind of see her as this like teenager that is that is doing all this stuff now and yeah you you talked about it in the end the this is taking place after tony stark has died and apparently before he died he managed to upload his consciousness into this ai program and then sends the ai program to riri williams so that she can use it and going forward they're going to you know she's talking about the fact she needs a better ai for her for her suit and now she has the tony stark ai which is which is absolutely crazy and i'm not sure stark disappears at various times around here i'm not sure if he's gone when he gives her this or if he just made a backup of himself in case he was gone so that the world wouldn't have to be without him and he sent it to her because he realized that she needed an AI. So there may be an actual Tony Stark and an AI Tony Stark running around at the same time. <laughs> they, they, they also have the, the sort of, you know, sad scene where uh, her, her dad and her friend die in sort of a drive-by shooting kind of thing. Right. So she's got kind of that, that uh, little bit of tragedy in the, uh, in the past that drives her on as well. But... Overall, I think the just the positivity of the character and the the portrayal is one of the things that you know Ironheart is a very upbeat sort of character in comic book, and it's interesting because of that. 
Also, if you remember the crazy Los Angeles Moon Knights with Moon Knight thinking that he had Spider-Man and Wolverine in his head and everything. I did recognize the writer of this. It was Yeah, Brian yeah. Michael Bendis wrote this. Yeah. Sometimes he's completely insane and sometimes he writes the best comic books you'll ever see. And he has now kind of he he brought out Ironheart, Rory Williams. He also is the one who back in the day debuted Miles Morales as the new Spider-Man. So a lot of these, what they call legacy characters, uh, the ones that have succeeded, Bendis has actually had a better hit rate in terms of creating characters that, that have kind of the DNA needed to, to move them forward to actually be successful than a lot of people have. So. Interesting. Yeah, no, I, mm -hmm. I, I saw that as I was going into the book and I'm like, okay, those were, those were some interesting books. There was a, there was a pretty good story to it. And then, yeah, by the time you're, by the time you're done with the first book, you're like rooting for Rory. And, and like, I definitely would like to find some time to go back and explore a little bit further into that series because it, it did, it felt very, in despite the fact that we do see that, that kind of horrible incident with her, with her dad and her best friend, it's still, she seems like a very upbeat, very fun character and and it, you could just see where how this could be a really interesting uh story that they're setting out with here yep yeah absolutely also on the art i think stefano caselli uh and marte gracia did a spectacular job i love the art and i really love the color on it the coloring is i mean it's really more like painting on a lot of these new ones but it is really spectacular so, again very bright and very mm -hmm. upbeat that kind of matches like the tone of the story too in a lot of ways yep. but but also you know enough detail and and stuff there that it it it, it looks good again easy to follow it, it felt you know in that same vein of the of volume four for me where it, it just was it was kind of again a well-placed a well-paced story with good good artwork and it was it was a breeze and fun to get through there you go so so those are kind of the books for uh the one now let's kind of talk about what all this might mean in terms of going to the theater next week so what i'm postulating is that we're gonna have a bit of rary williams and shuri kind of hanging out <laughs> both of them sort of working on their suits and getting ready and eventually at some point in the third act we're going to have maybe not a full iron heart suit but that iron suit and we're going to have sherry in the in the black panther armor so those characters are going to start getting their star turn as far as the whole war thing goes the question is how all this happens and it looks like probably it's going to be another of these where the question to me is, is Namor actually going to be the villain? Because it almost seems like he's got some grudge or some some long-term almost claim on Wakanda. And now he's trying to take it back. And that's a very different portrayal than anything we've seen in the comics. Right. You know? So my hope would be that it is one of these other things where it's kind of the... 
the mistaken identities thing where they get turned against each other because of a, you know, some sort of third party misunderstanding or something. But it does look like in actual fact, it might just be Atlantis attacks or something like this. <laughs> it, it From the trailers and, we've seen so far, yeah, that doesn't seem. And that is unusual because Atlantis normally does not attack. And if they were going to, they Wakanda is not the place I would expect them to come after. So I would I would also say by the way just as a, an aside if you look at the map uh in the volume 4 they have a spot where they pointed out where where in Africa Wakanda is and it's nowhere near water. It's, it's inland. Yes. It it's is always very inland. it's very inland. So why he's they're like coming out of the water and traipsing halfway across Africa to attack. That does seem a little weird. I I did notice that though. I don't know. I it had always seemed like it was it was like a mountainous country kind of inside. But I had never actually seen, I don't think, a map that specifically showed where where it is within the continent before. And so that was that was kind of bold of them to actually place it at this point. Um, I wonder what country that actually puts it inside of in the Marvel Universe. Which which country lost territory to Wakanda in the Marvel Universe? But uh, in any case, so kind of kind of interesting stuff. But but I am I'm excited to see what happens. I'm hoping that everybody kind of gets their shot to uh, to do some things. Namor looks cool. Uh, he looks very different, obviously. You know, there's no, um, none of the Mayan um, sort of representation that we're seeing. Uh, the Mesoamerican stuff is in the is in the comics, but it looks like a really interesting way to do it. So that and like, how do they? What do they do from a story standpoint to explain the the death of Chadwick Boseman as well? That that seems like the other big thing in this movie they're gonna have to now we get to the point that's so sad we don't want to talk about it yeah this, this continues to suck because he was yes. just a perfect he, black panther he was, ama- <laughs> um, he was amazing but yeah i mean the thing is that the way the marvel universe is right now uh you would either have to recast which i think just from a respect standpoint that was not an option they just couldn't do it or you have to then move on with essentially one of these legacy characters and there is a part of me that kind of hopes this is just the way that Marvel moves forward. Because your two options are to either reboot the universe every five years or so when your actors get older. Or to simply let Tony Stark die and have Riri Williams replace him. Let, you know, T'Challa die and let Shuri replace him. And, you know, let Captain America go off to be with his sweetie in the 1940s and let the Falcon replace him. And... I think that's if you if you continue that path, it actually does something I I kind of had wished the comics had done for a long time, of just allowing for an actual orderly progression of people along their lives, rather than that constant, you know, misery that we talked about last week, where comic characters can never actually be happy. Right. This way, you could even retire one or two of them without killing them if they wanted to. Right. Yeah. So. <laughs> but in any case so that uh i like these books though i thought they were yes. a lot of fun um 
I have not, I've not finished like the some of the Black Panther ones. I haven't read all the Ironheart stuff. Uh, a lot of these, I didn't have uh, Marvel Unlimited when they first came out, and I was at that point I had an eight and a six year old, and so comics were not high on my uh, list of priorities at that sure. time. Sure. So I'm going back and, and catching up a little bit on some of these books because I missed uh, I missed some of them, and there's some really good stuff. Yeah, really good stuff. Yeah, I, these these were really good. I would def- definitely recommend all three of them for di- different reasons. Uh, I think I liked Volume Four the best of these, but I, I think there's something for everybody in here. And and I and if you're if you liked the movies and you wanted a good uh, starting point, I definitely would recommend Volume Four to. Uh, to to kind of jump into the comic book side of of Black Panther. Yeah, I've actually been reading ahead a little bit on uh, on the Invincible Iron Man's too, just because the first one was so good, and I think that's actually something I'd really recommend to folks too. That's okay. it's really it's really a pretty darn entertaining story. They did they did a nice job with that. Uh, so excellent stuff. All right, Dan. I mean, we've talked about it all, all pretty much the entire show, but where are we going next week? What? Is it, there's a new movie coming out next week? What is yeah. this in my notes? Hey, so yeah, we're talking Black Panther, Wakanda Forever next week. So you have tickets? I do. I have tickets Saturday uh, right around noon. A uh, bunch of us are getting together and going to, to the movie theater. Not a private showing. Uh, we we just all bought tickets in the same theater next to each other so that we could go and have a good time. Excellent. Yep. So I'll be heading out probably with uh, one or more of the kids as well this weekend. And so it's going to be fun. Uh, interesting to see how it all goes. Uh, there have been so many movies coming out lately. Uh, the stuff. It'll be interesting to see again how sort of the Marvel uh, the Marvel movie universe compares to the, the TV universe. This TV has done pretty well by us the last couple of months, so right. movies have to wow us. I, I'm looking forward to seeing if they can do that. And with that, that's going to wrap us up for this week. We'd like to thank you all for joining us. If you're new to the podcast, please consider subscribing on your podcast player of choice. That way you'll get each new episode as soon as it's released. If you're new to the show or if you've been with us from the beginning, we'd love to hear your thoughts on the show. You can send them to us via email. That address is comments at comicsovertime.com or you can message us via Twitter. That address is at comicsovertime. Dan, until next week, when we get to talk about another brand new movie and one that I think I've been really excited about ever since that very first trailer. Yep, absolutely. It's looking like it's going to be a lot of fun. We will, we will discuss it next week. Talk to you then. Take care, everybody. Yep. See you later, folks.